Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. I mean, you've got to do that basic work of, you know, the first layer off, the soil off. But then when you start finding little things and then you get into it and then there's a, a bone appears and then it's, you know, the, the brushing with the brush and, you know, all that delicate work and it's just, well, what's it going to be? It's just, I think it's just the excitement of, you know, what's going to actually come out and, yeah. No mai haramai. Welcome to Our Changing World. Ko and Cannon tēnei. Robin McGuigan is standing over a large stainless steel sink downstairs in the archaeology department in the University of Otago. Spray gun in hand with a giant sieve full of bones and dirt in front of her. It's not her typical Saturday afternoon activity. And I live, actually live in Christchurch, but Whakapapa to Moiraki have big and well, the whole whānau, our yeah, whole whānau have a, a lot to do with Moiraki. I mean, that, that's home to us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why, you know, when they these opportunities come up to do this sort of thing in Moiraki, I mean, I, yeah, we went to the first excavation and um, just sort of thought, oh, yeah, another thing to do. And, uh, you know, took the great-grandchildren with me as well. Um, but didn't think I'd get so into it and just loved it, you know. But we were only there for the first day and a half and then had to go back and go to work and that. So, yeah, I just love it, yeah. Moiraki is a small fishing village on the east coast of the South Island, about an hour north of Otipoti. It's known for the unusually large spherical boulders that can be found along a nearby beach, for amazing kaimoana, and for the nearby Katiki Point Lighthouse and Reserve, where you can usually spot fur seals and yellow-eyed penguins. Robin is part of a community-driven project investigating an archaeological site in order to preserve the stories and the history of her tūpuna at Moiraki. To find out about the background to the project, I sit down to chat with Dr Gerard O'Regan. Oh, kia ora, I call Gerard O'Regan a I'm the curator Māori at Otago Museum, uh, but I'm also a whānau member of Te Runango Moiraki. And... Um, I'm also one of the trustees of Tikoraki Urupa. We are sitting in the corner of the next door room to Robin. While she and others are washing material, in this room, Fano members, with students and staff from the University of Otago and Tuhura Otago Museum, are sorting through material that has already been washed and dried. That's the general chatter and laughter you hear in the background, the happy sounds of archaeology happening. So how did it come to be that all these people are hanging out in an archaeology lab in Dunedin on a rainy Saturday? Having done archaeology for many years, one day when I was up at Tikoraki, I noticed, when I was up there visiting the Urupa, I noticed that uh, along the eroding cliff face you could see a long black strata just below the surface in the eroding bank. And um, that's indicative of a Māori archaeological site. So I went and had a closer look at that down the bank and um, found some pieces of obsidian poking out and uh, 
Of course, obsidian in the South Island has been imported from the North Island. And so that both showed that it was an archaeological site, but it also sort of uh, showed it was an old archaeological site. This was not the only evidence that something was buried not far below the surface in the Urupa. A number of years ago, the Runanga had a planting project around the Urupa, and the area along the top fence line provided some surprises. We dug a hole to put a tree in, and um, suddenly up popped a whole lot of barracuda bone, dog bone, power shell, so mixed midden. And um, we got the power shell radiocarbon dated, and it showed that at least that part of the midden was um, appeared to be early in uh, the occupation of Te Waipaunamu. It was roughly 600-odd years before present, and that places the Urupa in that early period of um, Māori footprint in the South Island. A midden is a word for essentially a domestic dump site, so likely to be full of the bones of whatever people were eating. It will also have bits of tools and other artefacts that will give clues about how the people at the time were living. For example, the obsidian volcanic rock that Jared mentioned, which was often used in tools. Now, while the radiocarbon dating of this power shell to 600 years ago is pretty neat in terms of adding to the history of Moraki, Jared is quick to point out the caveats. One of the problems, though, is power shell is, or marine material is not necessarily reliable for radiocarbon dating because it's influenced by um, the different marine isotopes and so on and what we end up with is uh, the calibration curves we have for radiocarbon dating for the marine shell is actually a worldwide marine radiocarbon dating calibration and so it's not very precise. Waikato University has got a project on at the moment hoping to um, develop a more local New Zealand marine calibration curve, which will be helpful for dating these early sites. But for the moment, the power shell date, while exciting, isn't definitive. Yeah, and it's so kind of exciting with a little asterisk. It's got an exclamation mark and a couple of question marks behind it, yeah. One of the things we're hoping to do is um, find some good charcoal that we can radiocarbon date, which will give us a tighter chronology. This is one of the things the washers have to look out for. Having helped to excavate the site a few months previously, the bags of recovered material are being poured into large sieves. Robin and her sink mate and sister, Jill Keto, are ready to wash them down following the guidance of Associate Professor Anne Ford. Yeah, it's just the same thing, spreading it around, being careful. The stuff from the bags is spread out across the sieve, and their job will be to get rid of the dirt, clay, grass and roots, and keep and wash down the animal and fish bones, artefacts and charcoal. You can, if you feel that... It's just like that clay sediment. Uh -huh. You can crush it through. Just keep an eye that it's not charcoal. Yeah. You don't want to crush the charcoal. The charcoal will be will almost make your hand black with it. Yeah. It and okay. it, it so feels just be lighter. Careful with it when you've, it oh, okay. Like, yeah. It feels lighter. That's charcoal. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. So yeah. we don't want to crush that because um, rather than using it for dating, what we can actually use it for is um, we can slice that and we can look at the structure and we can work out what trees. And what plants oh, yeah. are actually present there, so we can look at, um, you know, if there's been any vegetation change and stuff over time. So 
it's a, another really good resource. There's so much bound up in charcoal. We always think of it for the dating of the sites, but it's becoming even more important for um, yeah, understanding environmental change or vegetation change caused by people clearing the site. Yeah. So that's it. Okay. Though they dug at three sites at the last excavation, what they are washing right now is material that came from a one-by-one-metre test pit that went down about 30 centimetres, says Anne. Um, there's quite a lot of sea mammal that came out of this particular one and a lot of fish. So it's, you can see the bags. There's just so much material that came out of one very, very small pit. Very rich site. How do you decide what to collect? This has all been washed through already at the site? Um, not washed at the site, but sieved at the site. So we do a, a general um, sieving process first to remove as much dirt as possible. But as you can see from these bags, they still have quite a lot of dirt in them because we want to be able to bring them back to the lab and do more controlled work here because you don't want to lose things in the field. At the sink next door to Robin and Jill is Nigel McGuigan, Robin's son, who was also at the excavation. Well, we went over with the whole crew and, and they cut out the layers out of the ground and stuff like that. But I was on one of these all day, so they would just feed me dirt. On a big giant sieve? Yeah, a big sieve, and yeah. they just feed me dirt, so I was sieving all day and pulling out bones and yeah, all sorts of stuff. Found a, like a pendant or a... Or maybe even like a needle of some kind. Okay. Uh, yeah, but it was cool. It was hard work, but good yeah. fun. Yeah, good being with all the whānau and stuff like that. So. Yeah, true. Yeah. So yeah. how many people were there for the excavation day? Oh, there must have been... I don't know. There must have been 30 or 40 of the whānau, I suppose. Yeah. So is this what you would have sieved yeah. in Moraki? Yeah, we're going to be washing it here. You're back on the sieves? Yeah, back on the sieves. <laughs> <laughs> Why have you decided to get involved? I just like learning. And yeah, just to, to learn a bit more of our whanau that were in Moiraki when it, yeah, years and years ago. And yeah, what areas they sort of habitated and what they, what they were eating and yeah, that kind of stuff. It's just, yeah, it's an interest to me. Yeah. This was a key motivator for the project, says Jared. When we got this project going, one of the ideas was, well, we need the archaeological expertise and support um, from the wider community, and this, this being the University of Otago. But um, it was an opportunity for us to do the archaeology ourselves. And so when we thought about it, we thought, well, actually, this is one of our um, urupa. It's one of our places, one of our wahitupuna, it's um, a project we can do from the marae and as such it's a project we can do whereby our wider whanau um, has an opportunity to be hands-on involved in the archaeology to make sure it's been done properly, to make sure it's been done with all of the right, um, the right protocols in terms of not only our own tikanga but also in terms of um, the archaeological authorities and archaeological practice but um, it's a chance for our whānau to be hands-on involved and actually um, explore the archaeology and the learning ourselves rather than waiting for the report to be written by somebody else. It's not that the learning is restricted to us, but the first glance, the first, the first look is actually happening within our 
within our whānau. You know, it, it just it changes the dynamic of what we're doing. So we put the pānui out with the idea of doing this project and there's warm, strong support within the wider whānau of the Renaka that, yep, yep, this is something that we'd like to do. Now, Jared makes clear that the dig, while within the grounds of the Urupa, does not involve disturbing any burials. The midden site is not far below the surface. As Anne said, their test bit was only 25 to 30 centimetres deep. But time is of the essence to recover and document this archaeological story, because both erosion by the sea and burrowing by a flourishing rabbit population on Tikaraki Point are threatening the site. With his archaeology hat on, Jurd is interested in how the excavation's findings will fit into the wider context of other sites around coastal Otago. The Otago coast has got a whole lot of notable sites at river mouths. So we've got Waihimo, Shag River Mouth, Pleasant River Mouth. We've got a whole lot of interesting sites on beaches and so on. But for Moiraki, finding this early archaeological site up on a headland such as um, Tikoraki Point is actually, uh, it's a bit different. And so by exploring the archaeology here, what we hope to learn is a better understanding of um, the early settlement of uh, the Moiraki Peninsula and therefore how Moiraki Peninsula sort of fits in a little bit more with um, some of the other sites, be it Matakaya, Shag Point or other archaeological sites in Moiraki, such as Kataki Pa, which we know to have been a later period occupation. And just to build up the the longer-term picture... But that comes later. For now, after the washing step, what remains is laid out on big trays and put in the drying lab. Recovered bones, shells and other bits that have been washed and dried already is what the team in this room are going through, including another member of the McGuigan Fano. I'm Tania McGuigan and I am part of the Fano like Whakapapa bat from Moiraki and was involved with the dig right from the would go so my fun era from Waitaki so it's of interest for me to see how our my ancestors you know what they were living off and how they lived and um yeah so. where do you live now Tony? I live in Timaru so I'm a nurse in Timaru so um yeah I've got I've got three children and three grandchildren so we all live in Timaru but they weren't allowed to come today because it was Nana's. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't babysitting or doing it. Was, I'm in here, sorry. Yeah, yeah, so, um, yeah, so it's been so. I'm, and I'm down with my brother, my mum, my tower, um, two of my aunties, a cousin, and the second cousin were all here today as well. So, you know, so there's. Brought, you know, brings us all together as well. So, yeah, mm. really the fun yeah. It is, yeah, definitely. So we all got that interest in, yeah, I mean, we grew up with holidays and things in Moiraki and my grandmother lived there, my tower, for 10 years. So, you know, in the later stages of her retirement. So, yeah, it's, um, it's a special place. In front of Tanya is a large white plastic tray full of the jumbled up stuff from the site. She explains what her task is. So I'm sorting through a tray of, what would you call the material? Yeah, that, um, interestingly enough, it was part of the, when I, we did the dig, this was the area that I was working in there too, so um, it's interesting to see this, so this for me is a continue on from what we were yeah, it's come out of the same hole, so it's interesting. And just sorting out into 
we're narrowing it down, I suppose you could say, where bits and pieces belong. That's neat. So you, this area, were you sieving or digging or how, Both. what part? Okay. Yeah, so it started with pegging it out for a start off and um, taking the top layer of the soil off and then starting and yeah and then taking where then I went to the sieving from this hole you know as well doing the sieving as well and yeah a bit of everything really so but all in the same hole area F. It's your area, Tanya's area. And so this then has been cleaned and dried and now you've got a big tray full of lots of different things. Lots of different things and then it's sorting out like we've got um, shell, rock, charcoal, mammal, fish bones, lots of, yeah. So different smaller trays that you're going through um, carefully and picking out. Picking out and making it and then those smaller trays I suppose the next step would be sorting them out I suppose, yeah. So it's good fun. Back to Jared for what comes next. Well the next phase will be trying to identify what the different species are of the different fish, the different shells and the different um, sea mammal bones that are represented and from there we'll then start to build up a picture, uh, we'll do the analyses of um, uh, what those animals represent, therefore what kind of activities were represented by the different animals. So for example when we've got these sea mammal bones we're able to try to figure out sort of like what the old people were doing, uh, what they were eating, you know, and okay they're eating these seals. we might find dog bone in there, which is indicative of um, the dog. If we find dog bone in midden, it's indicative of the dog having been eaten. When we look at the different fish and the different fish species and the different shellfish species, we then get an insight into what parts of the environment they were, the old people were drawing kai from at that particular time when they're occupying um, Tikuraki Point. So, for example, we have um, power. There's plenty of power in there, um, some quite big power. <laughs> um, you know, uh, there's um, a lot of the large poopoo, the um, cat's eye shellfish, you know, so rocky shore shellfish. But then we've also got some, um, I think, pippy and that, which are indicative of kai from the sandy beaches. So you're just in looking at those shells, already we can tell the, the different kinds of resource gathering that was going on. When we find um, different flakes of stone tools or stone that was used for tools, they just might be little shards left of a larger tool that was removed or, or that we haven't found. But that, that then tells us that um, about the stone resources that the old people had access to, whether that was them directly going to places and bringing the stones back or whether it was through trade, it gives us an idea of the stone resources they had. Then we'll do the analyses on those bits of stone and if we can find use wear on the stone, um, it might actually also tell us something about the activities that they were use, um, applying that stone to. Um, so one of the really interesting ones we've already got is um, little flakes of obsidian. There's a burst of excitement every time the team find one of those little obsidian flakes. As Anne explains, they can learn a lot from them. 
We've got a little bit of obsidian from the site, but this is why we do this, so we can find out. Like You see some of it in the field, but because um, the obsidian is so small, it can sometimes end up in the bags. So, yeah, there's some that's already come through. So um, we can source to where that comes from the North Island, if it comes from Mare Island or Northland, Coromandel, um, Topor. Um, but it's really exciting for us because there's no obsidian in the South Island. So it must have come down from the north. Somebody's brought it. Yeah, either someone's brought it or it's been passed down hand by hand by hand through different groups. Um, that's a possibility as well. So it's hard to understand the exact mechanism, but the fact that it's here shows there's definitely links. For Gerard O'Regan, it's part of the joy, adding more knowledge to how his ancestors lived. It's finding the treasure. But it's not finding the treasure just in the sort of sense of, oh, is that ponamu, you know, or, oh, is that sort of like a, a valuable piece of artefact or something like that. It's also finding the treasure in the sense of um, realising that, oh, out of that little fish bone or out of that little bit of that fragment of bone turns out to be a piece of more bone, the, the treasure is what it tells us, you know, um, the learning we can draw from it. And so we end up with this kind of... Um, broader recognition of, of what the treasure is and you know as archaeologists we can sit there and look at a pile of shells and think of those as treasure recognizing the fact that you know these shells were here because the old people pulled them off the rocks or got them out of the beach and took them to that place and so these shells have been touched by the old people and you know now through our um, working with them, our handling of them, we get to understand a little bit about what the old people were doing at, at that time back in the day. So it's um, kind of like taking a different view of um, of treasure, but it's sort of definitely that um, still that thing of discovery, of of uncovering, of unfolding, and uh, that's what I think is um, really lovely to sort of see the Farno here, sort of um, still engaged in that process. This project is personal, but it's not the first community archaeology project that Jurid has been involved in. He has helped out before on community projects in Bruce Bay on the West Coast and in Rakiura, and saw for himself the benefits. Which is why Terunanga Umoraki were happy to get MB participatory science platform funding to allow them to involve as many of the interested whānau as possible. Community archaeology right around the world is, um, is recognised as being a really important development uh, of um, archaeological practice. And one of the things about it is, of course, um, with the community archaeology, we're giving people an opportunity to be hands-on involved, and those people, as part of the broader community, are in fact the people who make the decisions about land management onwards, outwards into the future. So it's not to say everyone's going to be an archaeologist, but um, at least when the next time it comes, an archaeological question comes up at the Marae, um, people have a, a, a strong reference point, you know, to reflect upon, and um, and so. This kind of project has been, um, you know, it, it's not the first and there are lots of other examples that have occurred over the last 20 years across New Zealand, but um, when it happens it's always rather special. As an archaeologist you have those moments of, oh that's right, this is, this is why we're doing it, yeah. As Jared and I chat amidst all the sorting, a hum of excitement grows from the other corner. Something has been found by Isla, another Fano member. 
Well, 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 look at that. <laughs> that is beautiful. So would it have come like quite far out, like a big fish hook or just... No, 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 what that is, is it's a little fish hook point. Rolling it over, you can see that it's um, um, concave on the back and convex on the front, so that's a bit of bird bone and it's been carved into a little fishhook point and it would have been, see these little, the two little notches on the outside there? Yeah. That helps tie the point onto a wooden shank. So it's part, it's a bone point off a composite fishhook. The wooden shank of the fishhook would have come down and around up like this. So that's a lovely little find. Gorgeous, and it just goes to show, sort of, as you're sorting through the trays, as you clear things away from each other, you get to look at things differently all over again. Yeah. And um, and so up pops that a lovely little talk of that, and it's uh, beautifully intact. Yeah, still sharp. <laughs> still sharp. You could you could still tie that to another lovely curved piece of wood and go fishing. <laughs> Thanks to Robin McGuigan, Jill Quito, Nigel McGuigan and Tanya McGuigan for speaking with me. As well as Dr Gerardo Regan, Māori curator at Tuhura Otago Museum and Associate Professor Anne Ford of the Archaeology Department at the University of Otago. This episode was produced by me, Claire Kincannon. Thanks to Justin Gregory for editing help. Sound engineering was by Phil Benj. Tim Watkin is the executive producer of Podcasts and Series. You can find and follow Our Changing Worlds on your favourite podcast platform. Check out the show's website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld for photos and links, for access to the Our Changing World back catalogue of episodes and to sign up to our monthly newsletter. And if you want to get in touch with us, we're on Facebook or Twitter at RNZ Science. Do come and say hi. There are lots of other great RNZ podcasts on a whole range of topics for you to explore and enjoy. The latest release, The Elephant in the Bedroom, takes a look at the intersection of sex, love and race. Click on the Podcasts and Series tab on the main RNZ page to find it. Visit tahi.fm or find it on your usual podcast app. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai to wiki. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.